Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Fundamentalist Podcast. My name is Elliot Morgan, and I am here with one of my favorite people in the world, guys, Dr. Peter Rollins. Today, we're going to be talking about freedom. In previous episodes, we've been talking about things like postmodernism and the idea of privacy and what was going on with Barbie. Underlying all of those is another question. What is even in freedom? How is it? What do you do with it? What can you do? Is it even real? Are you free? Are is not everything every one of us does always precipitated by a bunch of other things that led to it, thereby negating the very possibility that we have any agency over our lives? I don't know. These are the fun, lighthearted questions we like to explore here on this show. It's a kid's program, and we're hoping to sell it to Sesame Street at some point. Pete, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. I'm doing well. Um, what do you think about freedom? Here's the thing. Or do you, like, where's your intuition? Uh, or even you can tell me about where you, what you used to think, even. What a fun synchronicity, Pete, because I, you, and I know you love synchronicities. I was Ooh. just going to say we should do a topic on, uh, or an episode on intuition soon. Uh, yeah. I, my brain went, when you originally brought up freedom, um, to our American conception of freedom and how we very much obsess over it. But it's a weird kind of freedom. I think it's sometimes a very limited kind of freedom. It's not an internal freedom, free from the, you know, as you might say, contradictions inside. It's more of a freedom about, you know, what bumper stickers to put on your car or, or what seat belts to wear and that kind of thing. And that's fine. But I don't know. I feel like it's a little bit of a shallow version of freedom. I like a, a different kind of freedom. I like the freedom that like Viktor Frankl talks about, you know, and, um, in his his book or, or the kind of inner for the martin luther king Jew, the people in prison when they come up when they find that inner freedom that's what i'm that's what gets my blood flowing but i think you're talking about free will mm-hmm. i would that's what oh, I, I just went. put together i just put together the title of free willy <laughs> is play on free will oh is it no i i mean is it i mean you're they're free and willy it's free willy like, yeah, Maybe you know not. what? I never know. That could be the reason, actually. Yeah, I never thought of it. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, I appreciate you asking, Pete, but what do you think? Is that, that's your profound thought for the podcast? Hang on. <laughs> hey, hold on a second. That's all about freedom and determinism. <laughs> Predestination. <Free will. laughs> yeah, he's meant to be free or he's bound to be Oh, goodness. Anyway, yeah. SeaWorld sucks. All right. What do you think of, uh, of free will, Pete? Yeah, well, you know... He, one of the things you're talking about has is in philosophy is often called negative freedom which is the idea that what freedom means is that you are able to act on your desires uh so schopenhauer would say you're not free to choose your desires but freedom at a social or political level is when you're able to enact the desires that you have and that's one way that yeah. people try to reconcile it is they go, okay, we're all determined. You know, what we do is to do with internal biological factors and external factors. And there's a big, massive web of cause and effect. But uh, if we're able to do what we want, then, uh, you know, so you're only an incel if you want to have sex, right? So, you know, so you're, if you do want to have sex, you're not an incel because your desire and your activity are at one you know so if you you want sell you're voluntary celibate yeah so yeah exactly and so even if you're a prisoner and you're able to enjoy your prison cell you're able to fully almost countersign it and go i don't even want to go out you could say well that person is free they're not constrained so yeah that's that's a that's negative freedom but i think that's a very weak form of freedom uh, those are always the best those are always the scariest um characters in prison movies and prison shows when you meet the prisoner who loves being in there and he always runs the place or she if it's orange it's new black or what, something like that yeah. but those are the people that you get like oh this is their world they this is their whole they thrive they were meant to be here they, yes. this is where they found who they really are and it's like oh that's that's cool i like that that's a fun yeah. character and you know it's like in some ways you know you could say that to countersign necessity is a form of freedom so if for example you um are paralyzed um there's a certain sense in which if you're able to um embrace that reality you're free you kind of so it's you can't 
but then there's an argument that you should, you know, we should fight against our constraints. So, um, and freedom is precisely whenever you fight against necessity. So that's another way of arguing about it, is that freedom is precisely when, for example, during the Second World War, if you were in France during the Nazi occupation, freedom would precisely be the experience of not accepting the constraints of society and fighting against the occupation. So, you know, so freedom is, although that's still fighting for your desire, your desire is emancipation. So you're, so I guess freedom is, is not giving ground to your desire. Freedom is, is embracing your desire. Um, Well, you lost me a little bit, so I'm going to need some yeah. simple... Can you compare this, like, you know, like, use the plot of Free Willy to yes. describe what you just said? <laughs> Unfortunately, I have never so watched you're, Free you're Willy. So if you're Willy... Yeah. Well, you get the the idea that there's a, a Willy that's a whale that needs... That's got to get out of there. Yes. Yes. So, yes, yeah. exactly. So Willy is not free to choose his desire, right? He, he wants to escape. Yeah. He doesn't choose that. That's kind of... His nature is to escape and be free in the ocean. So he is determined. However, if he is able to escape the confines of the park, he would be free in the negative way. <laughs> he'd so be free be in the called? negative way because then he'd yeah. be free to do whatever he wanted. But then, then all of a sudden, his freedom would be what defined by his desires now. So his freedom is only as far as what he, he's like. Well, now what do I do now that I'm yes. free? That kind of because he's he well he's constrained by his instincts. So technically, at a metaphysical level, Willie's not free. He's he's going to be constrained by his instincts to eat certain foods, to mate, to do all of these things. He's not free to choose those things, but he's free to actually enact them. So he can, probably can't eat what he wants when he's in the park. So it should be called negative free Willie. That should be the sequel. Um, um, well, first of all, the sequel is called Free Willy 2. Okay. Um, I thought they were going to go with Freer Willy, but they did not. And uh, yours is a good one. Because yeah. you could uh, do a Freudian reading of, of the title. I mean, that's a philosophy, but Free Willy, there's definitely a Freudian reading there yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's been done. I, I'm pretty sure I've seen I don't know if they call it Freudian or if it's more of a Saturday Night Live kind of thing. But yeah, it's definitely... <laughs> Um, it's what I say when I when I'm being intimate. Um, I say, okay, time time to free Willie. Time um, to free Willie. So <laughs> this negative freedom that now I, I have a loose grasp on what you're talking about. How does this relate to those who go like? There's no such thing as free will. So you're if you say there's no such thing as free will, or or you come to that conclusion, and then you're like, so that's your your tank. You're you're like your free willy tank your lack of free will is like it doesn't matter what you do you're going to be stuck in this in this thing you're you're it's hopeless basically yeah uh but when you accept that when you go this is you know i have no free will then you would maybe be able to enjoy your tank a little bit this sounds depressing i'm getting i feel like still we should free willing yeah well um this idea that yeah metaphysically like and actually the animal is a very good example because uh the wheel or the monkey or whatever they have instincts so whenever you look at a dog or a cat uh you're less likely to think that the dog has any any metaphysical freedom any sense in which the dog has is acting outside of conditioning instincts training etc etc um so that and and that's generally what first year philosophy people think so i think i think actually our standard first position is everybody thinks well of course we're free of course i choose if i want a tea or a coffee or if i want to go out with somebody or not go out with somebody or if i choose a job or you know choose what exams to do that yes i'm choosing those i'm i'm not constrained i'm not forced to choose them so i think that's the that's the standard common sense position that I think most people start with. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. Yeah, I think so. I think because that's the common sense thing. Because and here's the big thing: is we we experience ourselves as free. I mean, they were, we'll get into this in a minute. Of, is that experience yeah. real? But we experience ourselves as free. Um, do you, you do you know, do you know about the experiment, but that was uh, done and has been replicated, where you kind of wire somebody up. 
and you can notice that when somebody performs an act, they perform the act before the brain decides yeah. to do it. So yeah, so basically what the brain is doing is it's rationalizing the act that you're going to do. So we experience it as I'm choosing to pick up this coffee cup and I'm choosing to drink the coffee, but it seems like what's really happening is you are bodily reaching out to this coffee cup without any consciousness going on. And yeah. then very quickly, almost immediately, your consciousness goes, oh, I wanted to do that. And that, Yeah, we're yeah. write a script, write a script real quick. Yes. I mean, come up, come up with why we did that. Yeah, I mean, this has been known for a long time. I think it was Freud did these uh, experiments, but where you could hypnotize somebody, get them to do something like put an umbrella up inside, and then you take them out of hypnosis and you ask them why they did it, they will give you rational yeah. rationalizations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So instead of going like I was forced I to by by hypnosis, they're going, oh, I wanted to test the umbrella to see if it was, you know, if it was working. Yeah. Right. You know. Oh. Uh that's very funny yeah that's i love that stuff there um yeah. it reminds me of when you walk into a room and you're like oh, i have no idea why i'm in here and then it's like who was that that was walking around that that so purposefully yes walked into this bedroom yeah. um that and, and that's kind of the on. truth that, like the, the, what's happened there is we're always doing that but usually your brain is really quick to make a reason up. <laughs> and whenever it, it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't, you kind of go like, what am I doing here? It's like your brain has let you down. Um, oh, stop. Yeah. Oh, crap. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Toilet paper. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, okay. All right. I'm following you so far. I like where this is going. This is nice. So you got the, you got the first, the common sense approach, and yes. then you have the actual recognition that mm, it's actually not quite as, as common sense as it might seem. Yes, which is the negation. So if, you, if the first position is affirmation, there is freedom. Then usually when people think about it for a bit and they read a bit of philosophy, then, then they go into the negation and they say, well, hold on a second. That doesn't make sense. What, what would it mean to make a free decision that's not influenced by socioeconomic conditions, by instincts, by biology, by conditioning? You know, if I'm choosing between tea and coffee, a million, a billion, billion, like an infinite number of things had to happen so that I only have that decision of tea and coffee. All of these contingent things happen to bring that to, to me. And also then all of my conditioning and my taste and my desire and what coffee or tea symbolizes, all of that is in the background. And so basically freedom is a user's illusion. Uh, we we might think we're free but everything's caught in cause and effect everything everything in science is basically seems to show that there is nothing that happens that is outside the chain of cause and effect including our mental faculties and you had me right up to the end but i appreciate what you're saying because yeah. um, yeah. you may feel that way but i'm incredibly free ah, yeah first of all yeah um but yeah cause and effect because it is hard to you can't it is, I think, overwhelming when you do that thing where, for me, it'll happen with a particular strand of weed, brand, excuse me, not even strand, and I will sometimes partake in it, and then as I sit there and I think, I'm like, wait a minute, every single thing I've ever done has been a result of the other thing that happened, the other things that happened before it, and so what I'm doing right now is a result of everything. And it is, it when you zoom out, you're like, well, that means everything I'm ever going to do is a result of what I just did. And that's depressing. Yeah. So we're back to depress. We're back to free willy and needing and wanting to free willy. Yes. I mean, yeah, no, it is like, I think whenever you think about it like that at first, um, you can feel when you're high, it's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's like right. dropping into an abyss. Yeah. And everything you do, like you, every act you do, you're like, oh shit, that was predetermined. Like that's, everything yeah. is predetermined. From the very start of time, uh, there was a famous French scientist, I think, um, Laplanche, I can't, I can't remember what his name was, but he basically said that if we knew everything about the position of every kind of atom in the universe and its velocity, like if we knew all of that and we had an infinite processing ability, we could know everything about the past, the present and the future. Like everything yeah. is just 
a, a, a play of these forces. It's like a clock, and the clock is, you set the clock in motion. Yeah. Then all the little pieces moving together, it'll keep the time. Yes. Because uh, you put them all together, and if you have a big enough clock, you can just go like, oh, or a big enough computer, you can say, yeah, you can calculate anything. I don't subscribe to that, but mm-hmm. I'm sure that that's probably true. But there's plenty of things that are true that I don't subscribe to. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the, in the, in the last hundred years, or 50 years, or 100 years, the, um, one of the areas of science that has maybe opened this up again a little bit is the realm of physics and quantum mechanics because uh, what seems to appear what's called as you know like the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics is that that there is a type of proto existence of of wave oscillations these oscillations in these superpositions and it's all probability based and when you measure a subatomic particle when you actually measure it with equipment you crunch it into reality it, it goes from this kind of virtual proto reality into reality and you can measure it but before you measure it it exists in this realm of possibility and so that another not do not recommend this episode again if you're high yeah okay. <laughs> yes because <laughs> that's the other abyss the other side yeah. of it is either way there's an abyss you fall backwards into the abyss of determinism or you fall forward into the abyss of non-determinist quantum physics stuff and either way you're going to be needing to hold on to the ground yeah it is going to tell yourself it's going to mess you up um yes <laughs> so the and it, you know do you know that woman do you ever watch her sabina Sabine Hossenfield? I forget. No. Let me, I'm going to look up her name so I get this right. I watch quite a lot of her on YouTube. She's quite good. She does a, a channel called Science Without the Gobbledygook. Uh, she's called oh, nice. uh, Sabine Hossenfelder, if I'm pronouncing her name right. Sabine Hossenfelder. She is very interesting, but she, she advocates what's called super determinism, which is some physicists who kind of say, well, actually, uh, there, this this might look like at the quantum level there is this uh, world of virtuality and possibility and um, uh, where everything isn't determined but that is just because we haven't found a more uh, fundamental basis and so someone yeah. they super determinists will basically say well the instrument that you measure the subatomic particle with they are connected in some way and we we haven't quite got down to the the next fundamental level uh to understand how they're connected but they are connected so that's kind of that's the return of classical physics in the world of quantum mechanics that's people who love the newtonian model of the universe like no you just haven't found the billiard ball yet the billiard ball is somewhere we just don't know where it is yes that's it that's it yeah absolutely so it's kind of going back to einstein when he said god doesn't play dice it's like yeah it's it's trying yeah. to kind of get back to that in some way um but here's boring 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 and yes, no thank you yes and this is where this is where because I, I am a philosopher of freedom i believe in freedom so what i what i want to say to these super determinists is so someone like Sabina or Sabine would say that there is objective reality and everything is determined and then we have this subjective illusion it's kind of it's very similar to this new age kind of thinking that there's a veil of illusions and behind the veil of illusions there is this substantive reality so similar language but there's subjectivity is this illusion that distorts our objective reality so it's it is a, it's an illusion that um, we kind of have to try to dissipate so that we can see that behind this illusion is really just the play of uh, cause and effect and I, w- I would argue well, that yeah oh go ahead what do you think of that this reminded me of the uh, Kripal's uh, understanding of like basically the same th- what is it dual aspect monism where the you know everything is essentially one and then your ego uh our sub- the human experience is such that we split 
this this monism and we fracture it and so we experience um the world not as it is so it but it's still that way it's but we experience it as uh, what does he say? I have the quote somewhere, but it's like a, a something epistemological dualism sits perfectly fine within an ontological monism or something like that. Okay. Like exactly. everything is yeah. this way, but we appear when we see it, when we experience it, our brains filter such that we, you know, see. This is why you're better. You're better. It's also earlier for me. So excuse oh me. yeah, well, does that make sense? Like you're saying, it makes a lot of sense. I'm just wondering, is that his position or is that what he is just? articulating because that, I that, believe yeah. that's his position but maybe it's not I don't know if he was just describing it or what he was talking I don't this was in I think the super humanities his newer book but I don't know I don't remember I, yeah I would guess from the little I knew of him I would guess that would be his position but I, I don't know enough but yeah that that's exactly that is that there's different versions of it and Spinoza maybe a version but the idea is that there is this monism that every this substantive reality um, and subjectivity is a type of uh, distortion that creates the illusion of a dualism of a subject and object uh, but that is yeah. yes that's a kind of what, what can be called a user's illusion um, now yes. I, I I was want to say something slightly different to that which is and I think that basically what super determinists mean is they say well this this illusion of subjectivity is a distortion that that is kind of like it's it's part of who we are we can't get rid of it it's a distortion but i think the answer to this is to say well that is freedom freedom is precisely the distortion in objectivity that prevents objectivity from being fully objective like that that is the definition of of freedom freedom isn't subject substantial freedom is precisely a type of uh a type of nothing that has to be taken into consideration when we look at reality. I <laughs> didn't understand quite, I don't yeah. think. Um, you're saying that the objective reality that exists behind this veil of illusions, mm -hmm. uh, to use to mix up all the language, it is itself not entirely objective because how could it be when within it is the broken and fractured perceptions or the user illusion basically i would yeah i want to so say therefore that basically, it taints no i yeah i want to say the illusion is part of objective reality the illusion is not something that merely gets in the way of objective reality illusion is part of the very nature of objective reality you can't get rid of it you can't get rid of the illusion without getting rid of objective reality as well. Okay, cool. All right. I, and I can give some examples. It's, it's a complicated idea, and, and we might have to, and I can give a couple of examples maybe to make it easier. But, but, yeah, it, but it's basically said that the very obstacle to objectivity is, is an inherent part of it. So I, I think a simple way of understanding this is in relation to language, that language is made up of a whole string of signifiers of words um, and each word points to other words and there's this and so every word is in a system of cause and effect every word points to other words but within language there is an exception to that and this is called the master signifier the master signifier is a word that strangely seems to lack meaning uh, and so a master signifier can be a word like justice or freedom or God. And what a master signifier is, is it's a word that corrals a whole mode of discourse. So there's all this writing around, say, the word freedom. But there's a sense in which we can never fully define the word freedom. The very word that holds all of this discourse together, there's an element of it that is that defies uh, description that defies definition, but the the definement the that which um, defies definition is part of language. It's actually, in fact, without a master signifier, you would not have language. So there is a type of something missing in language. That's why we can never fully say what we want to say. We we have to find different ways of saying things. We never just write one book and say, oh, that's it. You know, there's there's something in language that's missing. But the part that's missing is part of language. It is, and, and if you don't, 
if you don't take cognizance of the missing part within language, you can't understand language. And the missing part is called freedom. That's what I would say. That is quite different, Pete, than what Webster defines freedom as, which is so much more boring. It is the quality or state of being free. When you look up a definition of a word and it the first the definition is a word that's in the word, uh, like freedom is the state of being free or um, democracy is um, you know the s- s- noun version of to be democratic. That infuriates me. It also says, tells you nothing. The absence of necessity, coercion, or constraint in choice or action, liberation from slavery or restraint, or from the power of another, or simply independence. Oh, what is freedom? It means independence. You look up independence, what's it going to say? Eventually, you're going to get right back to freedom, aren't you? But they constellate these things. Why, why is it necessary? Like, why do we need these big words that that you that we're always talking around but never getting at that where they cluster and constellate all of these different other ideas is it because is it like a big bang thing is that like the source of the other words like where does this all why is it a what makes it a master signifier yeah so like the the pre-linguistic understanding of language is that words refer to things so when i say rock it refers to a thing out there that's called that's a rock you know and in that understanding of language language uh, is what you described it kind of you go back far enough and it's like somebody made a sound like that sounded like a thud that maybe was the sound of hitting a rock and so that was the original signifier that was like came from a a, an encounter with the world and so that notion is that there is at the, the core of all language there is something substantive but with Saussure and with linguistics that that theory, that kind of common sense theory, um, is very hard to substantiate. That's in fact, I mean, I, there's there's still some people who believe in it, uh, but I th- I think it's very hard to substantiate. I actually think have I you believed in it? <laughs> yeah. Have you heard the idea that all of it that most language starts from the body, like body metaphors? Oh no! Tell me more about that. Uh, that's all I know. But I, I didn't uh, I didn't subscribe to it because I don't subscribe to things that are true, but um, a lot of things anyway. But it is like, I don't forget who, what it was, or who was, maybe it was McGilchrist talking about it. He went really far into it. But the idea that, yeah, metaphors um, are always eventually tied back to the body. So you taste, you grasp something, you under, you understand it. It's like the posture of the body, parts of the body, actions of the body. And that's where we have all these words from. And yes, that that is, and and I would kind of disagree with that, but I understand that's a good example of this is that the idea that language at some basic point gets back to either something physical out in the world or to our bodies, that there's there's a substantive basis to to the signifier. Um, that that's a position. And as I say, I, it is quite a, it is a Jungian position to some extent. I think Jung kind of took to that. Makes sense. Kind of like the the Caesarian idea that that actually language is weirdly is all it is is a chain of signifiers that relates to other signifiers. There's no it doesn't anchor in anything solid. In fact, at its very core, there is an absence, and that's what the master signifier is. Is that okay? That language at its very core has not a not a bodily origin, but an origin in nothing, nothingness itself. Um, yeah, which um, call freedom. Okay, the and so, when you say Sasorian, that is what Tolkien. That's like the big book that Tolkien wrote after or before Lord of the. <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> I don't know the exact joke I'm trying to make, but what is the um? What is that book that he wrote? The, 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 yeah, I know it's the the Sorinian or something like that. Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> oh man, sorry, folks, I'm not a. Tolkien person, but um, okay. So yes, so Peter Rollins believes that something is based in nothingness, but that's okay. <laughs> yes, that's that's exactly it. Um, <laughs> to summarize, nothingness is created by something. That's that's the um, 
That's the key. The nothingness is created by something. Okay. So it's not something out of nothing. It's nothing out of something. Exactly. That's what I would argue. I would argue that it's, yes, that's beautifully said. I actually have to use that. Yes, it's not, it's not something out of nothing. It's nothing out of something. So in other words, language both creates something that it can't name and also then is created by that. So this is very postmodern. Whenever we talk, we did postmodernism recently. So Derrida talks a lot about this. Like he would say that when we use a word like justice, that's a word made up by humans and we put meaning to it. We write books about it, but, but also by writing about it, there's something that we never quite name. There's a crack, there's something missing. So when you, the more you write about justice and the more articulate you get, also there's something that remains unsaid in the word, something that cannot be nailed down. And that's an inherent necessary part of language. Um, yeah. People don't like, I mean, there, there's, there's a desire to kind of make language completely, to turn language into communication, basically to make language into something that says exactly what you want it to say. But I would say that's language by definition includes something that is missing. And to call it something is wrong because it's a nothing. It contains a nothing that, um, that animates it. Um, yeah, it sounds, it reminds me of the Dan McClellan guy that we've mentioned before, and I like his stuff, but he, he'll talk about the Bible as a Bible, scholar of the Bible. And he is very adamant about saying things like, the text itself has no meaning. This, words don't have meaning. We give them meaning. We interpret them in a particular way. Uh, and we negotiate, basically, with the text. And there's all these factors involved. And so you want to basically go with who is negotiating in a way that is the, you know, I guess most, ac I don't know, most accurate. I'm probably putting words in his mouth. You probably wouldn't say that. But is that kind of what you're getting at? It just sounds like a very postmodern um, idea of just going, no, none of this means it. we give it. It's all like make-believe a little bit. Yes. And, and then what I, what I want to add to that to make it kind of solid, because, you know, I'm not being a postmodernist myself, I want to say, but that we can give a name to this. So, so in other words, it's not simply that everything's kind of relative. It's that, that we can name this dimension and, you know, master signifier is one of the names for it in languages we can, and, but it's given different names in different disciplines. So we have particle geology or the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, you know, is the name for it in physics, uh, but it, so we can name this oscillation and actually the word God is traditionally one of the signifiers that signifies something that cannot be signified. So like what one of the most basic definitions of God is from Anselm, who says God is that than which none greater can be conceived. But basically to unpack what he means, he says God is a signifier for something that cannot be signified. So it is God is the God is the name of the blanket you put over the mystery to give it a shape, said Barry Taylor, as referenced in Pete Holmes' newest comedy special. I heard. I was talking to Barry yesterday. He was in Belfast. We were having a coffee, and um, he just got a text through, and it was somebody holding his book up. He said, oh, yeah, Pete Holmes mentioned me. And, um, and I was like, what? And he said, yeah, Pete Holmes had a special, and he mentioned me in it. Like, no way. That's crazy. Yeah. Was Barry wearing a Pete Holmes t-shirt and a Pete Holmes hat and a Pete Holmes... Um, jacket with a little picture of Pete Holmes on. <laughs> well, here, tell me what did you actually watch it? Did you see it? Yes, I do watch comedy sometimes. I uh, he, he quite he goes in quite detailed. Um, I had had somebody reach out to me and say like, uh, you should check out Pete Holmes' new special um, because he mentions Barry Taylor, and I was like, oh, cool. And uh, sure enough, he just he literally references Barry and says he was like a roadie for ACDC. Uh, he says he's this really great guy, and then he says what Barry said, which is God's the name of the blanket that you put over the mystery to give it a shape, and, or something like that. And um, and then he goes at the very end, you know, I, don't, I won't spoil it, but he he it, it, it is definitely a solid mention. I think I would be very excited if I was Barry, and I was also very happy for him because I was like, yeah, Barry's wonderful. So it was cool to see him pop up in that way. That's amazing because Barry is one of the good guys and he is the least, I mean, one of the issues Barry has, and I don't think he'll mind me saying, is he does the least self-promotion of anyone I know yeah. in the world. I, I keep trying to get him to 
promote what he's doing. And he has these great, he has thing called the tea cults where every week they drink tea and chat about stuff. He has a weekly book group. He does, he does a talk every week. I didn't even know it. And I'm a close friend of his. He does all these things and he just doesn't, he just has this pathological hatred of, of promoting anything he does. So when I heard that Pete Holmes mentioned them, I was like, brilliant. You know, yep. some people someone's got to do it. Yep. Uh, I hope they do because, um, I mean, when you hear like a profound statement and then, you know, there's a roadie for ACDC, it's just very fun. But yeah, it was cool. So you should check it out. Watch the special. It's fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's a great guy. So, oh, yeah, brilliant. Will too. Will too. <laughs> so, um, but yes. This is where I'm kind of like, I think you can really make a case for freedom is the idea is that instead of these determinists who saying, oh, it's just a subjective illusion, if the subjective illusion is actually has to be taken into consideration in order to understand reality then and coming back to your definition of freedom in the webster dictionary is there's something that escapes necessity there's something that escapes the web of of cause and effect and uh you cannot name it by definition in the same way that as soon as you measure subatomic particles as soon as you measure them you crunch them into reality so in other words you cannot measure the uh, potentiality it's by definition it's mathematically sound but you cannot measure this realm of pure potentiality every time you measure it you crunch it into being into actual reality in the same way you cannot directly grasp this element of of freedom um, every time every time you measure it it, everything that you measure is in cause and effect. Everything you know, every, all your consciousness, your ego, yep. your sense of self. Yeah. But at the same time, there is an eruption of, of a lack, which is called the unconscious in psychoanalysis. Right? There's an eruption of, of, of a, a kind of like a virtual bubbling of potentiality that, that defines who we are as human beings. I think, I think, you, you know, I think you can make a, a good argument for that. Are you familiar with the idea of systems theory or you heard of this? Just a little bit, just a little bit. Some people have yeah. heard people talk about it. And, uh... Well, it's like, um, cause going back to the monism or one, it, the cause, the cause and effect that we don't have access to is, or whatever that you would say, like where it's a bigger thing that exists. We are in a bigger system, correct? Like this, the systems theory is basically you shouldn't be breaking things apart into their smallest things, but seeing rather how they behave as systems. So like the body is a system, the solar system is a system, uh, the planet is a system. And when you can see all the different, when you can see things as systems, then the little things in the smaller parts are going to seem fractured or they're going to seem chaotic, uh, but they're all working within a bigger system. A hurricane is, you know, filled with chaos but it's still a part of a bigger system of the weather that's moving around and so is that kind of what you're saying but because that sounds like the system is still there's no subjectivity or fracture in it it's just contains a fracture within a larger paradigm yeah so it depends so like if systems theory is kind of saying that yeah you know, once you look at larger objects you have to look at them in and of themselves absolutely i think that's totally right and um it but what i'm saying is that every system has within it an exception what can be called the real with a capital r so i don't know if systems theory takes you know takes cognizance of that but i'm arguing that every system has within it uh something that that cannot be reduced to the system there is an okay. productive dimension to reality, but which must be taken into consideration. That's the key. It's not just that we name this for shits and giggles. Like it's it's something that has to be taken into consideration. Um, I mean, this is the very nature of the unconscious is that like a lot of people don't believe the unconscious exists. Uh, but the idea is that, you know, I would say that you have to take seriously that the unconscious, that there is a dimension of us that you cannot measure. That's not substantive. That's not, it's not like, a dark part of the brain that you can find. It's literally a type of uh, spontaneity, novelty, a type of contradiction, a type of lack that marks yeah. us. Some people think it's like tied to language too. It's, just, it's like, come on, man. Uh, 
insane. But um, yeah, the uh, I like how you described that, Pete. That makes total sense, and I understand what it means uh, in the most loose way you can imagine. Um, now, let's get into because you mentioned this before earlier. This well, I guess we kind of covered it. The experience of of freedom, experiencing ourselves as freedom. And you're you're saying you are a philosopher of freedom. You're pro freedom. There is a negative, uh, uh, inconsistent thing that that is in every system that is not complete. And the reason for, that you believe that is because the very act of of talking about unity requires you to mention the division that the person feels and the unconscious as a another example is that roughly well i would say yeah i'd say that basically uh, it, i didn't get it all did i level, yeah no no i think you did it's just kind of like adding say that at every level of like reality there is a type of uh, uh antagonism and and so at the level of physics uh heisenberg's uncertainty principle is kind of like is the name for it uh, the yeah. mathematics in you know Gödel's incompleteness theorem is the name for it in mathematics. Evolutionary theory is the name for it in biology. So at, at every level, we find a type of antagonism, a productive antagonism, and the heart of that productive antagonism, I would say, is, is is basically where freedom erupts. So I wouldn't say that we have freedom. I say that we are freedom. So I don't have freedom. Uh, Everything I do is is conditioned by determinism, but I am freedom. Uh, subjectivity is the eruption of a type of lack, <laughs> uh, sedimented. You, it's like um, you sound first of all like a gospel song, which is beautiful right now, or like a new age that almost sounds like the most new age thing I've ever heard you say, which is "We are freedom." We are freedom. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's like a like a presidential slogan um uh, like no more malarkey remember that one? Oh yes um <laughs> we are freedom actually well you know and I, one of the examples i gave it was weeks ago and one of the other fundamentalists this is from shizak but i was just trying to talk about kind of what the unconscious is i said that shizak used the example where he watches a movie he watched this movie and it, what there was something missing something wasn't great about it he knew it was based on a book so he went to read the book and the book itself as well felt like there was something missing. So the movie pointed to the book, but the book also didn't feel complete. And so the two of them pointed to a third document, let's call it Q document, which was the complete document. Now that doesn't really exist. It doesn't exist in reality. It just comes into existence because of a failure of the movie and a failure of the book. Um, the what, the Q doc? I, I called it a Q manuscript, but just because okay. that's what they call the Star Trek manuscript that doesn't exist. Well, Q is interestingly what they call the guy in Star Trek as well, but they also call there's a Q manuscript in biblical scholarship, which is a manuscript that doesn't exist, but they presuppose its existence. Nice. Yeah, so this Q document is, in, in my example, uh, in the biblical sense, it probably did exist, but in this example, it do doesn't exist, but it kind of insists it is a gap that is opened up through the failure of reality and again that's what i kind of mean by a gap that is opened up in in the world uh that's non-reducible to the world i love that this is how you explain the unconscious uh <laughs> for people so like let me if you're having a hard time understanding it Imagine a movie that leads you to read a book that leads you back to the movie that leads to a document from biblical scholarship that doesn't really exist, but it presupposes it exists, so it doesn't persist, it insists, and that's basically what the unconscious is. <laughs> that was perfectly said. Thank you. Uh, uh, pretty good. <laughs> it's not dark. It, it latches on to parasitic. It latches on to language and creates, as a result, proof of a wholeness that cannot be accessed, but a wholeness that is not whole, because if it was whole, we wouldn't have... Um, we wouldn't have a the experience of splitting it, but that's still to say that it's, that we are not experiencing freedom. We are itself the freedom. Vote for Peter Rollins, twenty twenty eight. Yes, <laughs> well said, well said. That, and that's that's what I think subjectivity is: the subject, not my ego, not consciousness, but the subject, the deepest sense of us, is this um, 
what could you call it, is this um, uh, antagonism that, that erupts in sediments in, uh, in our actions and in the constructions around us. So, it's, so you could say it like this, like traditional de the traditional definition of God, uh, as in one of the traditional proofs of God, I should say, is that everything has a cause. So everything in the universe is a cause or an effect. And then uh, Aquinas famously said, there's one exception to this. We have to presuppose an uncaused cause, something that got the whole chain of cause and effect into motion, but is not itself part of that. Yeah. That's kind of what the master signifier is. The master signifier is language requires two words. You can't have a language of one word because words point to other words. So the first language is presence and absence. That's why kids throw food off the table and get it put back on presence and absence. That's the yep. first language, a proto language, two, two signifiers. Peekaboo. Peekaboo, exactly. Peekaboo, presence and absence. Um, and then basically what, the, so the first word in language is not a word. It's only when the second word arises that the first word retroactively becomes a word. So the first word is outside of the chain of cause and effect of, of signifiers. That's what the master signifier is. It it's weirdly says that there's one exception to the chain of, of, of language, and that one exception is the master signifier, which is, as I say, one of the early you know, uh, proofs in inverted commas of the existence of God that you have yeah. to presuppose one exception. I'm just- This had to start somewhere. Within, had to start somewhere, but unlike unlike Aquinas, I'm not saying that it, the beginning is outside of time. I'm saying that yeah. the beginning is inside. Yeah. In the acquisition. I mean, I love the way you explain that. The, that's so fun. The, um, the, the first word, there's no word for it. It's only when you have the second one that the first one comes into existence. Is that basically what you're saying? Because you don't have, you don't know what it is until you have something to say what it's not exactly to com compare and contrast so technically the first word of every infant and the first word of humanity was no um, and interestingly the bible starts with that like the, the prohibition don't don't eat of the fruit and the reason why the first word is no is because no it doesn't tell you something it's a prohibition and then you have to define what is the prohibition then you have to work out what it is so language arises to try to figure out what this prohibition means so in for infants, the first prohibition is the mother. You cannot stay with your mother. You have to separate. So there's a no, and then, but but that's not really a signifier until other signifiers come in and try to interpret why why am I not allowed to stay with the mother and da 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 da. And so yes, yeah, so the first word is is not really a word. It's an exception. That's fun. Um, yeah, the the I mean. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. All right. It's very abstract. I was talking to somebody about this just before I came onto the the uh, the podcast, and I was chatting to her about this this stuff, and her eyes glazed over. Yeah. Well, that's that's because you keep harassing the Starbucks barista. They're eventually going to stop listening to you, <laughs> sir. Just take it. Just take your frappuccino and get out of here with your extra whipped cream. Can I say one actually thing? This is a side. Please do. I'm enjoying this. Okay. Yeah, just about um, a lot of people don't like the, the idea of predestination. That's the religious term for this. Predestination is no matter what you do, you're either damned to heaven or you're going to heaven. Right? You know, there's nothing you can do. It's already done. It's predetermined. It's predecided. It's predestined. Um, but this actually was a real moral advance. Um, and very interesting because... Whenever you don't know if you're going to go to heaven or hell, you can try and be good in order to win the praise of God or to kind of get into heaven, right? So you, you do good acts selfishly. In order to be truly good, you have to act, Kant would say, non-pathologically. In other words, yeah. you do the good for no other reason than because it's the good, right? It's not a good act if you're just doing something because there's a gun to your head, right? If you give to the poor because someone's going to kill you if you don't, it's not a good it's not a it's not an ethical act so it's only an ethical act if you give to the poor and you're not you know you're not instagramming it you're not doing it for clicks you're not doing it for likes you just do it from your heart so the idea is that if you accept predestination 
then there's no reason to be good. There's just no reason because it's been predecided whether you're going to go to heaven or hell, which frees you to be who you are. And so if you're good, you're not being good for any reason. You're just being good because you want to be good. So there was some sort of ethical advancement in taking out pathological motives by saying, hey, you're predestined to heaven or hell, so, you know, nothing you can do to win God over. Um, okay. There, there's some interesting things. Yeah, there's a, because um, my the question I have, and this is, we'll get into, you would probably, I think I know what you would say, but the, which leads to more actual good. Like, if you believe that, which one gets the food shelter built? And that's a utilitarian, right? That's a utilitarian stance. Like, which one's actually, yeah. Uh, but you're saying which is, like, the soul of the individual healthier. And the soul of the individual will be healthier in a situation where they're not frantically trying to do good things to ensure their own salvation, but rather doing good things because they just want to do it. Yes. And that's it. That's it. So the utilitarian thinks that all ethical acts are ultimately pathological. And by pathological, I just mean self-interested, maximum yeah. pleasure, minimizing pain. Kant thinks that it's that the only ethical act is an act that is non-pathological. And then there's, I'm more Kantian here. I think you can, you can conceptualize an act that is not completely self-interested but that takes a bit of time to, we should do an episode on that sometime you know yeah um it reminds me of the probably have the uh but we can always revisit them i mean i forget everything i've ever said i have been following loosely the drama um of, from mr beast because he built a hundred wells of water in africa i heard about this so i tell i'll tell you what i heard and i want to hear what happened is did some people give him shit? That's what yes. I yes. So yeah, tell him, give me the give me the the summation here. What's what went on? I have not watched the video because I have a hard time watching Mr. Beast videos. They're not made for my sensibilities. But uh, my understanding is he kind of called it. Mr. Beast figured out a very long time ago the perfect formula for success on YouTube and has been doing it to the utmost ability for many years at this point. And he creates all these insane videos where he'll like, one of them off the top of my head that I did see was he built an entire Willy Wonka's chocolate factory and then gives the chocolate factory to someone in the video. Uh, or says, hey, you can either have this chocolate factory and it's like a legit Willy Wonka chocolate factory that he spends all his money on, or because it's going to cost so much money to upkeep, you can have half a million dollars and we'll give you the choice. And people usually take the half a million dollars. And so, but his editing style is different than what my brain can process. It's a little, my processing speed's a little slower, but he also called this and was like, I know that I'm going to get crap for, for putting up these wells. Um, and he did. And it was folks, I, my understanding is it was like an activist for, I don't know, Kenya, maybe, but they were saying that it shed light poorly on these African countries because it implied that that once again they need like handouts uh, to it from like rich Americans and it's like insulting basically and a bunch of other people are like well they you know Mr. Beast is like they needed wells so they got wells and then there's the other side where he does all of these philanthropic videos this is a whole like other channel that he does and they he does what like he i think was like gave people ice hearing or something like hearing surgery he gave like 100 people hearing uh like really insane expensive stuff and um and then the criticism is of course that he makes videos out of it which generates money which then goes in back to funding the videos i guess but yeah so it's that's what it was it's that classic thing of like oh you're just doing it the influencer thing because you want to get hits and then this is kind of a level up because it's there's like basically saying maybe you're being a little inappropriate or racist or something but that's all i know about it very interesting well here this is a good example funnily enough because you know the, the standard argument which i think the mr beast thing brings up is you know okay are you doing this selfishly you're doing this it creates money it creates clicks or it makes you look good um, you know, what about doing the stuff behind closed doors? And there's, there's that debate that we all know, and I can go back and forth on that. But interestingly, again, uh, Freud was the one who really nailed this. Uh, he talked about 
the most interesting selfless act, not being like Mother Teresa, but being uh, like, for example, well, he used like, Lacan talks about the Marquis de Sade, but you could talk about it like, say, say a capitalist who has made a huge amount of money. Um, I, Anne Rand, would say, well, this person is acting in their own self-interest, so a utilitarian kind of uh, description. Okay, so this person wants money. They love money. They, they make lots of money. They've got 5 million. Then they've got 10 million, 20 million, 100 million, 500 million. Um, but a kind of psychoanalytic view would be, well, there's a certain point at which this is a type of selflessness, but a zombie selflessness, because a zombie will continue to attack you even to its own detriment, even when its arms falling off and you've got a shotgun. And that actually often there's people who are so caught up in making money that they live a miserable life and they hurt their friends, they step on their friends, they don't spend enough time with family. And actually, if they were selfish, uh, they would stop when they made 20 million. Right? They, they'd stop and they'd enjoy it, but they can't. And even their doctor saying, you're give, going to give yourself a heart attack. Your blood pressure's through the roof. You know, you're driving an old beat up car. You're not enjoying your money. And that's, and that's the Freudian insight in 1920 with Beyond the Pleasure Principle. This is when Freud became Freud and became a pessimist in a way. But he said that there is a, there is a death drive. There is a, non-path, there is a non-pathological dimension to us that is selfless but not as i say in a good way but selfless in a bad way where we will maybe destroy our entire family just to sleep with somebody for a night right we'll we'll do something so destructive and we'll know it's destructive and we'll know we're doing it for something so tiny so inconsequential yep the inconsequential dimension of it even adds to it <laughs> makes it even more exciting and that that again that's my main way of critiquing utilitarianism actually is not by going oh there's mother Teresa's out there who are doing good work it's like pointing to loads of people out in the world and mr beast might be one of them i don't know if he's made enough money why does he still do stupid youtube videos you know it's like he um potentially has been caught up in a type of destructive activity that is that doesn't make sense in terms of pleasure how much do you think he's worth Ooh, that's interesting. So I don't really know, but I'm guessing because he's one of the old school originals. Let me put him on uh, 20, 25 mil. Um, 25 million. What if I told you, Pete, that Mr. Beast, as of who turned 25 in May 2023, he is worth a staggering $500 million. Whoa. He's got half, and that's because uh, he makes... He makes so much money, dude. It is insane. And I do respect his ability to just not quit uh, and also make so much money that he, he does all these outlandish videos. But um, anyway, I thought you'd find that interesting just because it is so it's so much different than what you'd expect if you're not familiar with YouTubers or that kind of world. But it's a mind boggling amount of, uh, of money. <laughs> uh, anyway, and hey, did we? Yeah, I don't know if we Go talked ahead. about this. I, I did talk about it in a podcast recently. I don't know if it was us, but the difference between um, uh, what's called uh, CMC and MCM in Marxism. So Marx famously said that, so uh, M, or sorry, CMC means commodity. Uh, so you make a commodity, I make a widget, and then I sell it, so I get money so that I can buy another commodity, right? So that's generally how we do things in life. We, we make something, we go to work and we produce something, we get money, and then with that money, we buy commodities that we want. Uh, but interestingly, what sometimes happens is that that swaps around. And then what we have is we have money, and with the money, we invest it to make a commodity, to sell, to get more money. And it's a very subtle difference, but now our desire is not for the things that money can buy, but for money itself. And so very quickly, and I see this within cryptocurrency, is people start to get obsessed, not with the money and what it can buy, but just with having bigger and bigger numbers. So you start to desire abstract capital 
over what capital can buy. And I think once you move from, as I say, from uh, CMC, which is commodity, money, commodity, to uh, to um, MCM, once you make that movement, it's very subtle, but uh, you get caught up in this frenetic pursuit that is death drive, just as for wow. Great. Or divorced from objects. Fun. That's, uh, yeah, that's depressing, but fun. I have not heard that. I don't think you've repeated that here. I don't, I didn't know about the, and uh, maybe I forgot, but the MCM thing is, uh, very interesting. And it makes sense because, you know, it's, uh, on social media, you can do it where you just become obsessive over the numbers, but the numbers aren't getting you anything directly. And it, you're not connecting that with real people. You're just like, I gotta have a look at the numbers. But then that can't have a monetary tie, so it's a little, you know. But the crypto thing, I think it really works because there's those memes where somebody dies on a mattress in a shitty house when they're a millionaire, you know, because they've never yep. taken the money out. So I think even when I was in crypto uh, a little bit, um, there was a point when it was doing really well and you just got interested in it, the, the, the money getting more. It was kind of divorced from what you could do with it. So I never took it out. And then of course, it'll just disappear as quickly as it appeared. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, me in Vegas. Money stops being real when I walk onto that casino floor and I, I don't equate, I go, I'll make, I'll win 150 bucks and be like, okay, well this just means I'm gonna gamble for longer. I'm gonna lose it. I'm not leaving this floor until I lose this money. And I can do it so quick. You've seen it. I mean, that, that's it. Technically, even if you were winning and winning and winning, like once you get into gambling, it becomes divorced from yeah. objects, divorced from what it can buy, and it becomes a, an obsession with with capital itself. Um, and like I, someone like Mr. Beast, I don't think suffers from that because it sounds like he's getting enjoyment from other things, whether they're good or not. I don't know, but um, he's he's potentially not getting enjoyment from making more money maybe he's starting to try to get enjoyment from helping people maybe he's transitioning i don't know but um i don't know he's he's i think working himself to a uh bloody stump basically is what i've, I've heard he's definitely got that like workaholic thing but he's at the age where that's what you do and it's great good for him i got no i got no negative things to say about the guy because i don't know enough to but i also can't watch his videos physically you should check out some of his videos it is fascinating as a side note you should when we're done go like just pick any one of his videos look at the thumbnails that he does there's like a brilliance behind his thumbnails he knows exactly what he's doing and click on any of them and it's like you can't there's it's i think it's like a different frame every like half second or third second because he knows that his audience he knows his audience and he knows his audience doesn't want to sit and watch something so he's got to keep constantly like it's nuts it's like adhd videos that are hypnotic i guess yeah that's um but here the one thing then i'll say as a thought and then that will be me is that interestingly we're so we find it uh a commonsensical to think that we're selfish and to think that we're doing stuff for selfish reasons it is interesting to ask oneself if actually there is a type of zombie selflessness behind some of her actions. Like if you're giving yourself working 120 hours a week uh, at a job um, to, you know, to make a certain amount of money and you think, well, I'm being self-interested. It would be interesting to ask yourself, am I actually being self-interested or am I being self-destructive? Am I yeah. being selfless in a very perverse way? And even asking yourself that question can shift something in you and then you can go maybe if i was a bit more selfish i'd actually give up this job <laughs> and uh, you know yeah so uh, yeah. yeah i like that that's a great point um anything else pete any other notes on on freedom free will no i'm i i'm good and i like the whole point i was trying to make is this idea that and the typical argument is i have free will i don't have free will this third position um is in this dialectic affirmation negation and this negation of negation you go from there is, i i have free will i don't have free will free will is just an illusion to the idea that this illusion 
is actually real. <laughs> this illusion is something that is part of reality and we have to take it seriously. So if, if yes. that from this, that's, that's all I'm trying to say. I like that very much. You could have just said that at the beginning, though. You know that? You could have just said it in the beginning, Pete. Uh, thank you, everybody. I thoroughly enjoyed that, Pete. I don't have anything to add. I feel like this is a rich enough episode. I was just trying to add a little a little zest and a little sex appeal. Um, but thank you, everyone. We should have some bonus episodes available pretty soon because we're on such a roll. So if you guys are interested in those, they'll be available at patreon.com slash the fundamentalists. Um, but of course, don't worry about it if not. And if you also would like to leave us a review on iTunes or check us out wherever podcasts are available and check out Peter at peterrollins.com and you can check me out um, just when you see me walking down the street. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Bye.